Trump's proposed wall obviously was racist and didn't work. So what can work to stem the flow of refugees from Central America? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. What we've really seen is a financial sector that gotten out of hand. There's much too much of a role in this country. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Something there is that doesn't love a wall. In his famous poem, Mending Wall, Robert Frost pondered, Before I built a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out. Without question, we know what Trump sought to wall out, people of color from south of the border. Now, as we breathe a hopeful sigh of relief while a new president is no longer building that wall, the terrible causes that drive so many Central Americans to see safety and asylum here remain unchanged. Imagine how bad things have to be to make you leave your home, risk great suffering along a walk of hundreds of miles, and quite possibly failure to actually get into the United States. So no matter how long and high a border wall may be, unless and until the reasons why people come here are addressed, they will, of necessity, keep coming. In her brand new book, Central America's Forgotten History, Revolution, Violence, and the Roots of Migration, Avi Chomsky asks, will Biden's Central American plan slow migration or speed it up? She asserts the uncomfortable fact that the new border politics of the Biden era are actually ancient history. (laughs) Without addressing the many causes of the migration, the walls will remain ineffective, is the only other option than uh, what the Trump has said is open borders? Is there anything that would actually work that is also humane and respectful of the desperate migrants? Can one ever solve a problem without addressing the cause of the problem? Our guest on Keeping Democracy today is Avi Chomsky, professor of history and coordinator of Latin American, Latino, and Caribbean studies at Salem State University in Massachusetts. Her books include Undocumented, How Immigration Became Illegal, A History of the Cuban Revolution, Linked Labor Histories, New England, Colombia, and the Making of a Global Working Class, They Take Our Jobs, and 20 Other Myths About Immigration, and West Indian Workers and the United Fruit Company in Costa Rica, 1870 to 1940. And in her spare time. She has also co-edited several anthologies. She's been active in Latin American solidarity and immigrants' rights movements for several decades. So unfortunate that we all need to do that. Avi Chomsky is a Tom Dispatch regular. Her new book, Central America's Forgotten History, Revolution, Violence, and the Roots of Migration, uh, is published this month in April. Well, again, thanks for being with us, Avi Chomsky. Oh, thank you for having me with you, and thanks for that um, awesome introduction. I try. You make me sound so much more important than I really am. Oh, yeah, 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 <laughs> sure. That's what the really important ones say. <laughs> the horror at the images of immigrant children in chain-link cages is one of the many reasons why America gave the boot to the cruelty-loving Donald Trump. As you note, Biden promised to reverse Donald Trump's draconian anti-immigrant policies. Okay, now he's president and he's issued something called the plan to build security and prosperity in partnership with the people of Central America. 
Gosh, that sounds refreshing and hopeful. It also promises uh-huh, to restore, quote, U.S. leadership in the region. What is that exactly? And really, haven't we had enough of that? Yeah, um, leadership is a really loaded word, um, and I'm glad you pointed to that one because it's not in the title of the plan, but it is in the rationale of the plan. Um, But there's also two words in the title of the plan that are really loaded. It's a plan to build security and prosperity in Central America. Um, Who could argue with security and prosperity, right? But if you know anything about Central America's history, especially recent history, um, what the United States calls security and what the United States calls prosperity for Mm -hmm. Central America um, don't necessarily look like security or prosperity to the (laughs) poor majorities in Central America. Yeah, there's a lot of that. (laughs) It's been going on, as you say, a long Long time. I can imagine Nicaragua under uh, Anastasio Somoza. Eh, then Americans could say, oh, yeah, there's security and prosperity. <laughs> security and prosperity for the few. Yes. Um, and, you know, I think, I think even people who look critically um, or maybe with open eyes at um, the recent history of the United States can start to see what the underside of those words means. That is, security um, means an increase in policing. Uh, Security means an increase in militarization. Um, So most of what the United States talks about in terms of security for Central America means military and policing aid. Mm. Now, strengthening um, corrupt and repressive institutions doesn't necessarily uh, make things better for the people who are the victims of those um, corrupt and repressive institutions. Um, And they're not exactly about to just sit still and take it. You know, I wouldn't think. I mean, you know, um, but when they do protest it, they become. So, I mean, all of this is really intertwined and like we almost can't talk about security without also talking about what the United States means by prosperity um, and some of the protests that I was just talking about. Um, So the other side of security and, you know, you always have to ask security for whom is prosperity. What does prosperity mean? And, you know, these have been U.S supposed U.S. goals in Central America for a century, um, and yet Central America is one of the least secure and most and least prosperous areas of the world. So you have to, um, you have to look critically at this. Prosperity for Central America is basically based on an economic model based on foreign investment and foreign profits, based on the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from and from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Mm -hmm. Central America. So again, this is not new. There's a kind of a 21st century model of what this export-based prosperity is supposed to look like, but it's not the first time that the United States has promoted export-based prosperity for Central America. Um, They've been doing it since Well, I mean, you know, Spain was doing it before the United States was doing it, but the United States has been doing it since the 19th century. Um, Prosperity based on foreign investment in building an economy uh, 
based on coffee plantations and banana plantations. This means taking land away from small farmers, putting it in the hands of wealthy foreigners and foreign corporations, um, who then uh, employ Central American workers under the most exploitative conditions um, to provide cheap exports for uh, consumers in the United States and um, enhance corporate profits. Um, in the middle of the 20th century, uh, the coffee and banana plantation system um, under crisis, a crisis caused by the coffee and, and banana plantation system, the United States had a great plan for prosperity in Central America based on non-traditional exports. We're going to give them lots of aid. Uh, we're going to help them build infrastructure. We're going to bring foreign investment in producing cattle, cotton, and sugar. Uh, profitably for U.S. corporations, great for U.S. consumers. That's where our fast food industry came from in the second half of the 20th century. Hmm. Um, but not so good for poor Central Americans who undergo a second or third round of dispossession, land loss, and being forced into labor under the most abominable conditions for the profits of others. So if you read about peasants dispossessed by the explosion of cattle ranching, um, if you read about the conditions of people like, and Rigoberta Menchu writes about this in her memoir, um, people forced to uh, labor on the cotton plantations, um, this is what prosperity for U.S. corporations looks like for the people of Central America. So, and that round of investment, U.S. investment in so aid and investment in this particular kind of prosperity, um, is in many ways what led to the revolutions. Uh, so you were saying, you know, people are only going to take it for so long. Um, the revolutions of the 1970s. Uh, the successful Nicaraguan Revolution and the wars that continued through the 1980s in El Salvador and Guatemala. So, and this then led to another round of U.S. aid for security, for uh -huh. overthrowing the um, revolutionary government in Nicaragua yeah. and for sustaining the right wing military dictatorships and uh, crushing the revolutionary movements in El Salvador and Guatemala with horrific human um, consequences for the populations of those countries. It is something that I think most Americans don't really know about or think about. I mean, the fast food thing, who'd have thunk it, you know, without <laughs> being able to, uh, you know, have cheap uh, cattle ranching there, might not be able to do that. Now, I, I've had an interest in the region for a while, and made a couple of trips there. One in 1977, I visited Peru and I was, which is South America, not Central America, but I was struck by seeing a, one of those black velvet paintings of John Kennedy in a hut mm -hmm. in a very poor village. Now his administration had the Alliance for Progress. W was that merely a cleverly labeled aspirational program, which was just more corporate imperialism or did it actually start to respect and work with the people there 
as equals, or perhaps a combination of both approaches. What was the reality of that Alliance for Progress? Well, the Alliance for Progress um, was really one side of a uh, a two-track policy that Kennedy had towards Latin America. Um, And, I mean, I've seen the same things that you have. President Kennedy had, um, first of all, he was Catholic. Um, And secondly, he he really... um, implemented policies like the Alliance for Progress that reached directly into people's homes. Like, I can't uh-huh. tell you how many people tell me that they got powdered milk and flour in bags that said gift of the USA uh-huh. um, during those, those Alliance for Progress years. Um, so the Alliance for Progress was definitely an attempt to build goodwill, especially among poor Latin Americans not just Central Americans, um, mm-hmm. because it operated throughout Latin America. But it had a very counter-revolutionary um, impulse to it, too. It was really the Cuban Revolution, uh-huh. 1959, um, that, that brought about Kennedy's sudden interest in sure. Latin America. And the underside of uh, the Alliance for Progress was counterinsurgency. And the alliance itself had a counterinsurgent goal. That is, and Kennedy said it straight out loud, um, we have to make conditions better to prevent more revolution. Um, But the counterinsurgency, uh, it had, so it's prosperity, but it's also security. That is, it also entailed huge increases of military aid. Mm -hmm. And of course, if you think about um, Kennedy and Latin America, the Bay of Pigs invasion was a Kennedy um, brainchild. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm not totally Kennedy because Eisenhower had already started thinking about it before that, but, um, but it was Kennedy who carried it out. So um, at the welcoming of Cuban, uh, Refugees, the building of the CIA, and the uh, counter counter revolutionary paramilitaries in Florida, um, all of that was Kennedy and Johnson and everybody else. I mean, really, it's you know one of the things that you see when you if you look at policies towards Latin America is that there's not a whole lot of difference between Democrats and Republicans yeah. when it comes to their goals in in Latin America. So. Um, the the buildings of military and paramilitary counterinsurgency was just as much Kennedy's goal as was the Alliance for Progress. So the alliance wasn't just to make the policy look good to the U.S. public. It was also to make it look good to the Latin American public. But just like Biden's security and prosperity, um, there's no way to make it look good to people who are displaced from their land and forced into labor under inhumane conditions, even if they get some powdered milk. Well, yeah, that, that is true. And it's a, it's a difficult uh, needle to thread, but you know, listening to the people, it doesn't seem all that 
complicated and caring about them and respecting them uh, is that, you know, it's theirs, it's not ours. We don't own Central America. I know, what a shocking thing to say. Uh, but if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're speaking with Avi Chomsky. Uh, she's written a, an article, a new book, uh, Central America's Forgotten History, Revolution, Violence, and the Roots of Migration. And we're wondering, will the new border politics of the Biden era are they actually ancient history? And it sounds kind of like they are. And there have been, obviously, a lot of similarities and, you know, same thread, Republicans and Democrats. But Republicans now are, are saying, oh, there's a crisis at the border, and that the Democrats have all along favored an open border. So now this is what we get. What, what is the reality? I mean, Democrats don't favor an open border. This is obviously uh, plays to the racist base of the new Republican Party. But well, go ahead. I have to say, I favor an open border, and I can tell you why if you want. You can ask me that in just a moment. But um, nobody in the Democratic Party has ever favored an open border. Right. And, um, you know, although Biden has talked about reversing Trump's immigration policies and his proposal, um, his proposed legislation on immigration does have a lot of progressive aspects to it, um, a lot of things worth supporting in it, but it does not propose an open border and no Democratic politician, right. in fact, no politician at all in the United States has ever proposed an open border. There's just a few radical voices on the left. Um, I can only think of like three of us. <laughs> Um, who actually believe in open borders. I mean, I think a lot of organizations are doing work that, um, but I mean, I think there's really good reasons to argue for an open border and that it's an important part, position to articulate, but it's not one that's politically realistic right. under current uh, conditions. And certainly it's very distant from what the Democrats are proposing. But what Biden has actually done since he has become president has been to make only the most tiny changes in the policies implemented by Trump. Um, mm. And we can see this when we look at his policies on the border. That is, Trump essentially, uh, the uh, I, I hate to use superlatives, I don't know what was the biggest thing that Trump did, because he did a lot of things. Yeah. But um, one important thing that Trump did was to essentially close the border to asylum seekers. Yes. Now, under international law, every person has the right to request asylum and to be fairly evaluated to see if they are eligible for asylum in the United States. Um, and Trump put an end to that. So that was something kind of radically different that yeah. Trump did. Yeah. He said, Anybody coming to the U.S. border is not going to be able to present their case for asylum. Right. Um, so, um, and he did this through two different mechanisms. One was his Remain in Mexico policy, the mm -hmm. migrant protection protocols that that anybody who wants to request asylum is just going to have to sit in squalor on the Mexican border until we decide that we are going to be ready to evaluate their claim. That can take years. Um, so, so that was one piece. The other piece was what's called Section 42, um, which was a supposed public health measure. I mean, it was 
it was implemented on a public health rationale, although legal experts say there, you know, it makes absolutely no sense. Um, his claim that, that that it's a public health measure, but basically saying that um, because of the public health emergency, that is the pandemic, nobody would be allowed to cross the border into the United States, the land border at all. Um, so Biden has made one small change in those policies, which is unaccompanied minors, that he will no longer uh, force unaccompanied minors to remain in Mexico um, mm-hmm. indefinitely. Uh, unaccompanied minors are now being allowed across the border. So this is the one change that Biden has made. And this is what everybody's all of a sudden talking about the border crisis, because not only um, are there so many unaccompanied minors, but there are also families with young children on the border who have been stuck there in limbo for months and months. And in some of those cases, the families are being forced to make the decision themselves to send their children unaccompanied over the border um, because their health and safety is at risk uh, there on the Mexican side where there is no infrastructure um, to, to support these vulnerable populations. And how difficult, how desperate must a family be to send their unaccompanied minor into the desert? Into the unknown, really, because... Although Biden has claimed that he's going to be trying to follow U.S. law, which says that children, minor children, cannot be detained for more than 72 hours by the um, Customs and Border Protection, that they must be moved to the custody of HHS and, Uh and kept under the Health and Human Services and kept under the least restrictive Mm -hmm. conditions. Um, be offered health care, schooling, and be released as quickly as possible to sponsors in the United States. All of that infrastructure was dismantled under the Trump administration and is not there. And so really nobody knows what, I mean, the children, the laws are not being followed and, um, and nobody knows how long children are going to be kept under inhumane conditions in the United States, despite Biden's claim, and I believe will to return to the pre-Trump policy, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but only for unaccompanied minors, not for anybody else. Well, as you say, the the clearest statement of the president's Central America goals appears in his U.S. Citizenship Act of 2021, sent to Congress on January 20th, the very first day he became president. It sounds good. What is that, and, and how does it work? The U.S. Citizen Act, Citizenship Act of 2021. Well, what I've been focusing on mostly is what does it, what is he proposing for Central America? That is the um, the question of how to prevent people from getting to the border to begin with. And there's really two parts to that. One is the part that we've been talking about, right. the security and prosperity for Central America. The other part in a way, is even worse, um, which is that, and and this is the other part of security, um, but the security that focuses um, more directly on immigration, is forcing both Mexico and Guatemala Mm -hmm. to militarize their own southern borders Mm -hmm. to prevent people from leaving. 
So you can tell that he's even Biden is not all that confident that his security and prosperity is going to make people want to stay home or make people able to stay home. I shouldn't say want to because everybody oh, wants to course. stay home. Yeah, um, there are very few people who want to come to the United States just because they think it's going to be fun. So compelling, pouring military aid into new special police forces in Uh Mexico and Guatemala tasked with guarding their southern borders, pouring high technology that is regarding the border. Um, Well, I want to talk about the the immigration side of it, too, um, and and the the border side in the United States. But part of it is high technology. That is, Uh uh, Biden is saying, we don't need a wall. We hate walls. Trump was all about walls. Instead, we need technology. Uh Well, if you're a migrant... Um, technology is just as lethal, if not more so, um, than a wall is. And in terms of the environmental impact, in terms of the human impact, um, what he's basically proposing is a high-tech wall instead of a cement wall. So, and But he is forcing both Mexico and Guatemala right. not only to develop their policing capacities on the border, but also... And you know who profits from this, right? The companies that are making all of that technology and infrastructure in the United States, forcing them to purchase with U.S. aid this kind mm. of of technology uh, to to strengthen their borders. And not only that, but just like the United States, to extend their borders into the country. So we've seen this more in Mexico than in Guatemala so far, but I'm sure it's coming in Guatemala as well. That is to to ramp up the policing and repression of migrants everywhere in the national territory, not just at the border. And this is also, um, you know, based on what they've done in the United, what not Biden so much because he's new, but as vice president, definitely oversaw. in the United States as well. So an increase in security means not only repression against native populations, but specifically repression against migrants. And I'm reminded of uh, Obama, who in his foreign policy lessened the role of American boots on the ground so that the killing was done remotely, effectively using drones instead. And, you know, Trump... I mean, uh, Biden won by, by you know, uh, talking about how bad and evil the wall was, and it was a winning strategy for Biden. So he's kind of outsourcing a military response to what the wall was intended exactly. to do. So that Just like the outsourcing of industry, so that the uglier parts can be done out of sight of the American public. Right. Um, the repressive parts, that's exactly what they are trying to do on the, with the border. Wow. Um, I also wanted to go back to something that you, you asked before, though, if, sure. if I have, if I have time. Yeah, okay, um, time. <laughs> because I said um, that I actually support open borders, and uh-huh. I kind of wanted to explain that. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, before you do, actually, I, all of us, my ancestors came to the United States. They didn't have papers or anything you know there were there was nativist tendency back then they wanted to keep the irish out and the eastern europeans out but the borders were certainly relatively open back then weren't they and what what do you mean so go ahead sorry um well i would say the borders were open to europeans Uh um 
So I, I want to rewrite history for us a little bit here. So the United States is a settler colonial country. Um, and this goes back to uh, 1609. Um, the United States is a project based on bringing European immigrants to dispossess, displace, and exterminate, replace the native population. No question. It was a project based on the enslavement of Africans Mm -hmm. who were not considered citizens of the new country when it was founded. Only white people could be citizens. Africans and Native Americans and Afro-descended people could not be citizens. And the project of bringing more white people to build this white settler colonial country was the policy of the new country. It's there in the Declaration of Independence. It's there in the Constitution. And it's there in every act taken by the new country starting immediately um, upon its founding. And one of these is the expansion. And and expansion means expulsion um, that began immediately after independence. So expansion means expulsion, and it means Uh, state-sponsored white immigration. So you said they didn't want Irish immigrants, but actually there was definitely prejudice against Irish immigrants. Um, There was a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant um, culture that that was prejudiced, biased against some of these uh, European immigrants, but it was still a state project to bring these immigrants and to settle them on native, expropriated native lands. That was the project. The United States never welcomed non-white immigrants. So the open door was only for Europeans, and it was part of a settler colonial project. That's going on precisely when the Chinese are being excluded Mm -hmm. um, and when Mexicans are being constructed as deportable temporary migrant workers. Mm. So open border was a racial project. Um, It was a white racial project project. Hmm. But open border today means something different because today we have citizenship by birth. That means anybody who's born in the United States uh, is automatically a citizen. So that citizenship, if people are allowed in the country, citizenship cannot be restricted racially the way it was until the end of the 19th century. Mm Mm-hmm just over a hundred years ago. So the racial project has shifted to excluding non-white immigrants. Gotcha. And a lot of people are very, very upset about that. Well, maybe not a lot of people, but people who make noise and who have been, uh, their their energies and fears have been tapped into uh, very effectively. Trump is just one uh, example of that. But what Trump said when he made that famous comment about how we don't need any more immigrants from these expletive countries, we want right. more immigrants from places like Norway. Yeah, right. Um, you know, there was a kind of a liberal backlash and people said, oh, no, that's not who we are. We're a country that's always welcomed immigrants. Well, they're wrong. Trump is actually articulating exactly what we have always been, a country that has welcomed Mm. immigrants from places like Norway. Right. um, And not immigrants who are people of color. Well, America is, I mean, I think one of the things that's really upsetting a lot of the people uh, on the right 
who, you know, they, that whole racist, you know, white culture, uh, you know, Christian nationalism, yeah, has been there for a long time. And now they, I think they must sense fear of, oh my goodness, white Christian males are not dominant anymore. And how scary is that? And so it sort of ramps, I, I mean, this is just my interpretation, it ramps up the, the fear of them. And the idea of immigrant rights, you know, if one already has racist tendencies, uh, that phrase would certainly aggravate uh, them. And you're certainly right. I mean, if you look at the settling, settling, that's an interesting word, of America, you know, the whole, the Mexican-American war, uh, taking that land and the uh, push to, uh, you know, expand into, it's all, you're right. I mean, it's it's keeping it for white people now. But what, you know, it's been... So let me just finish what I wanted to say about borders and why I support open borders. Yes, I think do. we're kind of just getting there now. Okay. Um, which is that the border is a racist construction. That is the purpose of the border, um, and I guess we could say a capitalist and a racist construction. The purpose of the border is to maintain inequality between the United States and its southern neighbors, to increase the power of corporations to exploit workers, both in the United States and in Mexico and Central America. That is the purpose of the border. Interesting. And it goes along with nationalism, which is saying, we, you know, we are the best, you are less than. And that's, you know, an awful lot of wars have been like that. Um, well, that's the ideological justification, but yeah. there's a, a crass material justification here. It's about profits. Huh. Is you can make more profits off of workers when they lack rights. And the border is a way of preventing workers from having rights both inside the United States, if they're non-citizen, undocumented, vulnerable guest workers, and inside Mexico, because this border says, oh, well, Mexico is going to have a whole different set of laws. So everything uh -huh. workers fought for in the United States, workers in Mexico are not going to have. Right. And we're going to make sure they don't have it by continuing to invest in security and prosperity there. Interesting. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're speaking with Avi uh, Chomsky about uh, uh, her new book, uh, Central America's Forgotten History, Revolution, Violence, and the Roots of Migration. We're talking about what changes, if any, Biden is making. Uh, and uh, we talked about a little bit about Obama, uh, but Jimmy Carter... Did he do something different? He had a different approach, I think. How did that work out? Are there are there lessons which remain relevant and useful, or was it really not that different? So the context of the 1960s, 70s, 80s was quite different in many ways, both ideolo ideologically at least. So remember that in 1965, a major immigration reform was passed, the Immigration and Nationality Act. Um, and the 1965 law was passed in the context of um, the social movements of the 1960s, which included the United Farm Workers, um, the Chicano movement, the civil rights movements, Native American movements, um, and the repudiate the sort of post-war, post-World War II repudiation of 
overt racism and genocide, the Cold War, where the United States is trying to um, promote itself as the guardian of human rights um, in the world. So the 1965 Immigration Act responded to that particular historical moment. And what 1965 did is it removed all of the racial restrictions on immigration. It created what uh, was called a, a, a fair quota system where every country in the world was given an equal quota of uh-huh. people allowed to immigrate to the United States. And that was so num- this was really celebrated as a piece of progressive um, mm-hmm. immigration legislation. Mm-hmm. But there were some aspects of it that were not very progressive in their long-term implications. And one was that up until 1965, there had never been any numerical limits on Mexican migration. Mm. Uh, Mexicans were welcomed with open arms, but only as temporary workers. And this was the Bracero program, but many, many Mexicans crossed, you know, the the essentially open border, um, but Mexicans were always deportable. Now, this permanent deportability of Mexicans was considered rightly shameful and racist, so the 1960, um, in 1964, the Bracero program was ended, um, but the deportability of Mexicans was re-inscribed in a way that seemed less racist by the creation of illegality. Uh-huh. By this quota system applied to Mexico that made Mexican workers illegal. Interesting. Interesting. So, so even in the most progressive legislation, mm-hmm. um, the ability to exploit Mexican workers is so necessary. At that time, primarily um, in California agriculture, but in historically in the mining, in railroad building, uh, in Texas, in Arizona, um, that is the entire economy of the Southwest was based on uh, the exploitability of Mexican workers. So the next major reform came not under Carter, but under Reagan in 1986 with the Immigration Reform and Control Act, IRCA. It's called IRCA, the Immigration Reform and Control Act. And by today's standards, that also looks really progressive. Like we couldn't get anything like that passed today, but like the immigration and nationality act and like every proposal for immigration reform, including Biden's proposal for immigration reform, um, the 1986 act combined a path to legalization for many of the undocumented people in the United States with strengthening the border and greater ability to exploit Mexican workers, in particular through the illegalizing of work. So to make the employer sanctions, which sounds like 
it's going to be the employers who are sanctioned. And in theory, according to the law, that was supposed to be how it worked. But in fact, it was the workers who were vulnerable because the employer might have to pay a small fine, but the workers could be jailed and deported. So employer sanctions made hiring Mexican workers, quote, illegal, but it also granted amnesty, which was openly supported then by Democrats and Republicans. Um, the idea that we don't want people in the United States in the shadows without rights, that this status of illegality, there's something wrong with this, that, that we should not maintain a subject population that does not have full rights in the country. So in 1986, it was still possible to say that. Now it's practically not even possible to say that. But Biden's plan does pretty much the same thing as was done in 1986. That is, it offers an amnesty to a significant number of people, but it increases repression and increases the uh, so-called control of the border. Ah, fascinating. Uh, the more you learn from history, oof, it's ugly there, and uh, there's not a lot... Given that security and prosperity seems to be the driving phrase for just about everything, then of course and I think when you hear those things, you always have to ask: security for right, whom? Right. Prosperity for whom? Right. And if these, you know, if 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 they were prospering down there, they wouldn't be coming up here. And I I want to read a little bit from uh, an April seventh New York Times article by Natalie uh, Kitroff. She interviewed Magdalena Flores, a mother of seven, standing on a mattress that peeked out from a dirt where her house used to be, who said, we are doomed here. The desperation, the sadness, that's what makes you migrate. People have uh, long left uh, Honduras for the United States, fleeing gang violence, economic misery, and indifference of a government run by a president accused of ties to drug traffickers. Uh, then last fall, two hurricanes hit impoverished areas of Honduras in rapid succession, uh, striking more than 4 million people across the nation, nearly half the population leveling entire neighborhoods. Months after the hurricanes, houses remain underwater, gaping holes have replaced bridges. Thousands of people are still displaced, living in shelters or on the street. Hunger is stalking them, she says. And the government, supported by the U.S., has been not particularly helpful. Another mother who was selling bits of her old house said, not no one, not one politician or government has helped us. Now she's waiting for the next caravan to leave, not driven not by hope, but by despair. In the same article, Dan Restrepo, hope I pronounced it right, who was a top advisor, Restrepo, uh, said, uh, who was advisor to Obama, said, we need to go big now, and we need to be loud about it, because that starts actually factoring into the calculus that people face today, which is, can I survive here or not? The title of your article is this question, will Biden's Central American plan slow migration or speed it up? What about the effects of, of climate change and and Pick, making people less desperate and, 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 you know, able to eat and survive. Is Biden's plan addressing this? Um, so I'm glad you brought up Honduras because it's a really important example. And there's two things that I want to mention about Honduras. Um, you ended by quoting something that Obama said about how we have to help Honduras so that people don't want to leave. No. Um, but remember that it, and, and you began by quoting the article as saying that people have long left Honduras. And that's actually not quite true. 
the surge of migration flight of refugees out of Honduras has not been going on for a long time. Prior to 2009, there was hardly any migration out of Honduras into the United States. Um, And remember who was president in 2009? And who was Secretary Um, of State. (laughs) Yes. Uh Uh, So, um, just in case your listeners don't remember, it was Obama and his Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, who oversaw the military coup in Honduras in 2009. Um, And uh, early in 2009, president in Honduras. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. ahead. Well, I was just going to say, this was right out of the starting gate in 2009. I can't help but think that the people of Honduras and elsewhere thought, oh, man, we finally got a new president, somebody who's going to care about us. Whoops, that didn't (laughs) happen. And, uh, you know, it it used to be what I meant to say before was that the only reason they left was for gang violence and, and, uh, you know, a, a president accused of ties to drug traffickers. But then 2009 came. Go ahead. Um, so the, uh, the elected president in Honduras right. in 2009, Manuel Zelaya, yes. was a moderate, populist, slight progressive, yes. um, but who was implementing certain policies that U.S. corporations did not like, things like raising the minimum wage in Honduras, um, things that actually could redistribute some of Honduras's wealth away from the foreign corporations and towards the population of Honduras. Every time a government in Latin America tries to do that, the United States moves in to stop it, um, as we did in Honduras in 2009. So the military coup there is the coup that brought into power the ultra-neoliberal drug-dealing, corrupt government that Honduras has now. And that's when we start to see the explosion of gang violence in Honduras as well. That is, that was not the case prior to 2009. Uh Um, So so the, the neoliberal economic model that the United States has imposed on Central America since uh, since the defeat of the revolutionary projects of the 1970s and 1980s is basically based on three pillars. Um, and we see all of those going full force in Honduras. Um, one is extractivism. That is the supporting of huge foreign-run mega projects in mining and energy resources. Right, that's big. Two is maquiladoras, that is the outsourcing of labor-intensive U.S. industries to Central America and the building of free trade zones that mm-hmm. grant all kinds of benefits to these industries. Um, and three is tourism. So all of these things are based on profits for foreign corporations, consumption by the U.S. population or wealthy people anywhere, and dispossession, displacement, and exploitation for the population of these countries. So I also just wanted to say something about climate change, since you brought it up, and the recent hurricanes in Honduras. Um, 
So we all know what the cause of climate change is, right? right? right. Um, maybe you want to say it's CO2 emissions. Maybe you want to say it's fossil fuels. Um, but I would say that the cause of climate change is the U.S. economic development model. It's overconsumption by the rich and overproduction in the uh, in the quest for constantly increasing profits. So, um, you know, climate change is human caused, but it's not just caused by individual humans. It's caused by the economic system that we have in this country, which is why we have greater per capita emissions than any other place in the world, and that we are imposing everywhere that we can get our hands on, especially in Central America. So the people who are forced to migrate because of climate change, I would say, are being forced to migrate by because of U.S. policy, just as much as those who were forced to migrate because of displacement due to extractivism, maquiladoras, and tourism. Well, it sure is nice to have a uh, a colony that just serves us. They don't have any rights themselves, but it's all it's all for us. There's clearly a long-term solution, actually addressing the causes of despair and the uh, exploitation uh, with agricultural and economic help and governments that serve the population there and serve the foreign exploiters less. But in the meantime... Are there things the North American government, the U.S. government, can do to reduce the flow in the near term? Um, Well, again, I think our goal should not be reducing the flow, but rather the right to stay home. Uh I think we should reframe it in terms of the rights of people in Central America rather than what Uh is... This idea that somehow the flow is bad for us, so we right. need to reduce it, um, that dehumanizes the people of Central America. Yes. Um, so, so I would say a policy that prioritizes the right to stay home. The right to stay home means that we have to address all of these things we've just been talking about. We have to address our culpability for climate change. We have to address our culpability for the drug wars in Central America. We have to address our culpability for the economic models we've imposed on Central America. Um, We have to address our culpability for the military destruction that we have wrought on Central America. So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, one way of answering that question is that we cannot... uh, create the correct economic model for Central America. Central Americans have shown again and again their capacity to create more just economic models. The problem is that we won't let them do it when they, when they do it. And there's not like one exact solution, uh, you know, cookie cutter solution. They say, okay, so we're going to just do this and then everybody will be great. But we certainly have seen um, attempts in 1954 in Guatemala, yes. in uh, 1979 in Nicaragua, to restructure economies with the interests of the population at their center, Absolutely. to grant more rights to workers and peasants, uh, to um, to um, allow rights to unionization, to uh, carry out land reforms. Um, 
and even to a lesser extent, uh, we've seen it, um, you know, in the 2000s in, in Honduras, uh, really yeah. small-scale attempts at reform. Um, so one thing is just to say the United States needs to allow Central Americans to, um, and there are many, many organizations in Central yes. America that are pressing for greater rights for poor people um, in different ways. So, you know, they should be the ones that we're listening to rather than saying, oh, okay, now we have the next solution. Um, <laughs> yeah, that we're going to put down on them. And I found it fascinating, rather disturbing, that the new Secretary of State, Blinken, said, uh, well, the United States has to be the organizer. The world's not going to organize itself. Excuse mm -hmm, me? Mm -hmm. Excuse me? <laughs> they are capable. The idea of self-government. Whoa, what a <laughs> concept. You know, it applies to us, but not them. And... Um, but the other thing is to understand where our policies specifically are making it impossible for Central Americans to work towards more just societies themselves. And I would say um, that our imposition of our form of security and prosperity, yeah. um, I think that we owe an enormous historical debt to Central America, and, mm -hmm. you know, our responsibility for climate change, we have a big responsibility there, and to the extent that um, so many of Central America's migrants are refugees from the dry zone, yes. um, which has been created yes. uh, by climate change, um, farm, addressing yeah. our culpability there and a radical change in our own economic model is another way that we could help Central America. Uh, that would be nice. And looking at history, I remember in the 1980s, there was something called CISPES, C-I-S-P-E-S. -E I hadn't heard of them for a long time. Oh, they're and, still around, actually. Well, apparently so. So listeners of this show often like to learn about what they can do. Tell us about CISPES, uh, uh, Committee in Solidarity with the People of El Salvador, and what options there may be for concerned North Americans. Um, well, you know, one of the first things I learned when I traveled to Central America uh, in the 1980s, the mid-1980s, was that the main thing that we need to do is here, not in Central America. Um, right. You know, I was on a solidarity delegation and everybody's saying, what can we do to help you? What can we do to help you? Um, and the answer that we got was, uh, we don't really need your help. We need you to go home and change your own government so that uh. we can bring about the changes that we need here. Um, I'll just quote you what CISPA says in January 2021, asking Biden uh, to rethink its Central America plans. Mm -hmm. The intersecting crises that millions in Central America face are the result of decades of brutal state repression of democratic movements by right-wing regimes and the implementation of economic models designed to benefit local oligarchs mm -hmm. and transnational corporations. Mm -hmm. Far too often, the United States has been a major force behind these policies, which have impoverished the majority of the population and devastated the environment. So it looks like Biden's plan for security and prosperity is 
looking is barking up the wrong tree. <laughs> uh, we've been there before, haven't we? Well, the new book by our guest, Avi Chomsky, uh, is uh, Central America's Forgotten History, Revolution, Violence, and the Roots of Migration. And uh, I think you, you really nailed it on the head about the whole idea of the right to stay home. Thank you so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Mama, mama, look there You children are playing in the street again Don't you know what happened down there? A youth of 14 got shot down there The cocaine guns jammed downtown The killing clowns are blood money men Washington bullets again As every cell in Chile will tell The cries of the tortured men Remember Lenny in the days before Before the army came Please remember Victor Hara in the Santiago Stadium. Verdad, oh, those Washington bullets again. And in the Bay of Pigs in 1961, a banner for the Playboy in the Cuban sun. But Castro is the color, is a redder than red. Those Washington bullets want Castro dead. But Castro is the color.